confession time for me. I'm not doing so good this morning. Uh, today, the last 24 hours have been a rough 24 hours for our family. Like there's a lot of other places I would rather be right now than standing right here in front of all of you. Yesterday, uh, and I don't want to make this about me in any way, but I just want to be honest about where I'm at in case you're like, man, Chris seems like he's a little off today. Chris is a little off today, okay? Chris is not okay. Um, yesterday, we got a text message from um, my wife's family in Alberta, and her mom was not doing good. And some, she's had cancer, and this has been an ongoing journey. And the long story short, my wife had to jump on an airplane uh, with her brother at 4 o'clock yesterday, and she had to go home and be with her family, and they had to say goodbye to her mom. It was hard. It's hard for us. It's hard for her. Um, I want to be with her so bad right now. I want her to be with us. It's just a sad day for our family. And so I, I'm coming here full of hope. Like you have, you know, I'm not, I'm not disheveled. I'm not, um, uh, I'm not lost. Like our, her mom loved Jesus. Lisa loved Jesus. I actually have planned to tell a story about Lisa this morning. And we'll just see how the clock goes and how my heart's doing, whether I feel like sobbing like a, like a little baby in front of all of you later today, this morning, if I'm going to tell that story or not. But you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's work, uh, words in, in First Thessalonians where he says, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope, right? So it's sad, it's a sad day for our family, but we actually believe wholeheartedly with full assurance and confidence that Lisa is in the arms of Jesus right now. She's dancing with him, she's hugging him, she's being held by him, she's not struggling with cancer, she's not in pain, she's not in agony. She's experiencing the fullness of the presence of God. It's so good. It's so broken. Like there's a serpent in the garden, right? But yet God is good in the midst of the brokenness. And so I just want to know if you're new, like we're not normally this, you know, we're, we're always this messed up. We're just not always this like sappy about it, but there's just some stuff going on and I just wanted to be honest with you. So I'm gonna pray. If you have a Bible, grab it, open it up, go to Matthew chapter 14. I felt like I need to get that off my chest on the front end, otherwise it was gonna come out in the middle and it wouldn't have made any sense to anybody. But I just need to pray, take a minute and just ask the spirit of God to be with us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are good. That you are all sufficient that wherever there is lack, <clears throat> you have enough. I know in my life there's stuff. Carrie just shared in her life there is stuff. There's stuff. This room is full of stuff. We are not just a people who once needed Jesus. We are a people who desperately need you now. If we're here this morning and we don't know that, would you make us so keenly aware of how much we need you? But not just that, of how available you are to us, how sufficient you are to meet whatever the need is that is in this room. Even in the face of death, you provide everything we need. And so, Lord, we just humble ourselves. Just in this moment, church, just humble yourself and just admit you need, you come here needy this morning. 
Spirit, we need you to speak to our hearts and show us Jesus. Make us desperate for him. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Uh, again, if you're new, we typically go verse by verse through books of the Bible uh, here at West Village, and we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I think this is like week 73 or something like that. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to be picking up in verse 22. Uh, so I'm just going to get right to work because I've got a lot of things to say, and I'm, have, I just have this suspicion that we're going to run out of time, and I want to try and get to as much of it as I can. So Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 starts like this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Uh, So let me just kind of set up the context for us of what's happening in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, In Matthew chapter 14, uh, Matthew is writing, he's writing a a biographical account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And in chapter 14, he's giving us this series of events whereby he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's God with skin on that, that he came to reveal to us who God is, how we can know him, how we can know that he loves us. And one of the ways that Matthew, there's many ways that he does this in his gospel, but one of the ways specifically in Matthew chapter 14 that he's trying to reveal to us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that he is indeed is the son of God is through a series of miracles. And so what we just came out of last Sunday, Andrew preached and he did a great job preaching. If you didn't get a chance to listen, go back to the podcast and listen. Uh, We heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And what's happening now is, and Matthew uses this word immediately to indicate that what's about to occur occurred immediately after what just occurred, which was the feeding of the 5,000. What we see here is that Jesus immediately makes the disciples get into the boat and go out ahead of him to the other side. And then what we're going to see in verse 23 is that after they get dismissed, he goes up to the mountainside and pray uh, to pray. And what we, we don't get this in Matthew's gospel, but what we get in John's gospel is that after Jesus feeds the 5,000, there's these large crowds, probably upwards of twelve to 15,000 people that were around Jesus, and they wanted to make him king. They wanted to declare him to be king. And you would think that's a good thing, right? Doesn't Jesus want to be declared king? I like it when people think I'm the king. But Jesus wanted nothing to do with the kind of king that they wanted to crown him as. They wanted to call him king because he was doing things for them that they liked. He was giving them bread. He was giving them fish. He was performing miracles. He was doing, functionally doing what they would define or describe as parlor tricks for us. Give us more bread, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm not that kind of king. That's not the kind of Messiah I am. I'm not the Messiah who's just come to give you physical bread to satisfy your physical stomach, but I am the bread of life. I don't want to just meet all your physical needs. I want to satisfy the longest, the deepest longings you have in your soul. I want to show you that there's a God who made you, a God who knows you, a God who loves you. I want to show you that the brokenness that you feel in your heart, that feeling that we have when I stand up here and describe the reality of what my family is going to uh, going through, and we all feel this like, oh, that's not right. There's something not right about that scenario or that picture where we feel lost or where we feel brokenness, like something's not right in the world, that Jesus is the one who can satisfy not just your stomach, but that longing. 
He is God, and he alone can meet all of the longings of your heart. He can satisfy the longings of your soul. And the way that he does it isn't just by giving you bread, but it's by dying on the cross for you in your place for your sins. He takes away all your guilt. He takes away all your shame. He takes away all the brokenness in the world by laying down his life for you on the cross. And so at this point, the crowds didn't understand that. All they could understand about Jesus was that he was some kind of miracle worker, and so they wanted to make him king, and he didn't want any part of that. And so Jesus makes his disciples go uh, into a boat. Now, if you're a Bible underliner, this is just an interesting phrase here that I would recommend you underline or highlight if you're on the Bible app in your phone. Matthew says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He made them. It's going to come into play in just a second. So verse 23, after he dismissed them, the disciples, he went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, nobody asked me, but if I was going to be involved in putting the little chapter verses and titles over uh, the, you know, the various portions of the Bible, and this isn't heresy because these were added after, okay? So I'm not actually adding to God's word. I'm adding to the titles above God's word. I would actually call this story, Jesus walks on the water in the middle of a storm. Because what's happening here is the disciples get sent by Jesus out into the middle of a lake and there's a storm going on. And that's pretty significant. Whenever the Bible talks about storms or talks about uh, you know, uh, this idea of like waves crashing, it's, it's not just merely talking about physical acts, like the, the reality of an actual storm. It's often metaphorical for something that supersedes beyond just what we're seeing and, and reading and talking about. It's actually talking about much broader things. It's, it's talking about the storms that we experience in life. It's talking about the brokenness in the world. It's talking about sin. It's talking about death. This is a metaphor that the Bible uses. And so what's happening here, and we'll come back to that idea in just a second, but what's happening here is Jesus sends the disciples out into a boat, and they're in the middle of a lake, and there's a storm. Now think about this with me for a second. Jesus made his disciples go into the boat. And he sent them out into the middle of the lake into a storm. Jesus knew that there was going to be a storm. Jesus knew what he was doing. This wasn't a surprise to him, and yet he does it anyway. I think for many of us, this, this should probably like shuffle the furniture around in our minds and in our hearts of the ways in which God works. I mean, how many of us have heard something said to the effect, the safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. You ever heard that before? I just want to be in the center of the will of God. You pull into Costco and you pray that the will of God is that you would get a parking spot near the front. (laughs) Whenever we think about the, the will of God and obedience to God and following God and doing what God wants, it almost always is connected to our blessing, to our benefit, to our well-being, to life as we would define it being better than it currently is. But yet here, 
what we see is that Jesus sends his disciples out into the storm. Think about this for a second. Is it possible that the way that we define safe, that the way that we define well-being, that the way that we define a blessed life could be very different than the way that Jesus does? If you don't believe me, just think with me back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus gets sent out into the wilderness after his baptism to be tempted by Satan. And what are the temptations that Satan brings in front of Jesus? Wealth, prosperity, reputation. I mean, that should clue us in that those things might not actually be the best things for us. Amen? Not only that, if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, and if you, if you just take a step back and, and look at the full orb of, of Jesus' life, there is no human being who has ever lived who has been more obedient to God the Father than Jesus. He lived, if there, if there is such a thing as the center of the will of God, he lived in every single way obedient to the will of God the Father. And yet look at his life. What did his life look like? He was a homeless, humble marginalized Galilean peasant whose life ended by being convicted for crimes he did not commit and being tortured by going to the cross. So if you ever, th- if you ever think that somehow being in the center of the will of God equals your blessing, your prosperity, your financial prosperity, your, 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 your health, the prosperity of your health, that all the problems in your life just being gone. It's possible somewhere along the way that you've completely misunderstood the way that God works in our lives. Friends, just because something hard comes into our lives doesn't mean that it's not from God. Just because something is hard doesn't mean that God is punishing you. Just because there's something hard, it doesn't mean that God has turned his back on you because here's, here's what we need to understand. God's ultimate desire for us isn't, isn't happiness in a worldly sense. It's not prosperity in a financial sense. It's not, it's not health in a physical sense. It's that we would recognize that he is enough for us that he is absolutely all we need. And as we're going to see this morning, that happens more often than not when we're in storms. I mean, if it's, it's, it's interesting. If you go back to verse 23, uh, you see that Jesus sends his disciples out, then he goes up to the mountainside to pray, right? Well, well this, is, this, is, this just struck me as I was reading this. There's large crowds around Jesus, and he goes to the mountainside to pray. I was trying to think, when things are going really well for me, do I pray a lot? No, not very often. When I've got lots of money in the bank, when everything's going well, when the marriage is firing on all cylinders and all the things, all my functional idols, right? Church is growing, new people are showing up, people are getting saved, everything awesome is happening. I'm, I'm just knocking it out of the park Sunday after Sunday. People are like, man, you're the best, we love this church. Those are my idols, okay? Those are the things I worship. I don't pray. Do you know when I pray? 
when all of a sudden the attendance thins out, right? A few people leave, things are getting hard. That's all of a sudden I'm like, man, I really got to ramp up my prayer life. Why? Storms. Storms. We pray when our marriage is falling apart. We pray when we lose our job. We pray when life throws us curveballs that we weren't expecting. And so is it, is it possible that whatever trial that you're going through in this moment, whatever hardship you're experiencing in this moment, it isn't because Jesus has forgotten about you. It's actually because he wants to get your attention. He wants you to know that he is enough. And so Jesus sometimes will make us go into the storm. He makes his disciples go into the storm. And before you get upset with Jesus, don't forget in Matthew chapter three, when Jesus comes up out of the baptism waters, right after he comes up out of the baptism waters and gets sent out into public ministry, here's what Matthew records. The spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. He led him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by Satan. I don't understand how all this works. I don't fully understand God's economy or his will. But here's what I know, friends. And and we have to wrestle this greasy pig to the ground, and we probably will until the day that we die. He is much more concerned with our hearts. With having our hearts, all of our hearts, than he is with us living some other form of the North American dream. And we have to wrestle with what do we want? What do we want? Do we want Jesus or do we want something else? Story goes on, okay, verse... Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Okay, so let's, let's stop here for just a second. So for those of us who read the Bible a lot, you know, we kind of get used to some of this stuff, but what I just probably need to hit pause here and go, okay, this is unusual, right? This doesn't happen very often. So here, let me just set this up. Disciples in the middle of the lake, storms are happening, and Jesus walks out on the water towards them. It's unusual. It's unusual. Uh, Let me just give you a a little bit of a a biblical interpretation lesson. Homileticians, when they're uh, helping us understand how to write sermons and how to apply the scriptures, they they give us two kinds of application that we can make to a text. Okay, this is a little bit nerdy, but I think this will actually be helpful for you if you read your Bible at home. There's two kinds of application. There's the near application. Okay, there's a near and a far. The near application is is the application that you kind of get right out of the text. You, you, You read the text, Uh, You read the events that are taking place in the text and then you apply them to your life. This is probably, if we're honest, most of the times the way that we apply the Bible when we're reading it on our own. And so you might read this story and, you know, there's gonna be some spoiler alerts here, but uh, you might read it something like this. The disciples were out in the storm and sometimes there's storms in life and then Jesus came out to the disciples and Jesus made the storms go away. Jesus is enough in the storm. That's a really great way. It's a really great way to read the text. Uh, Sometimes though we can 
we, we can take just the near application of a text, just what we see in front of us, and then completely hijack what the Bible says. Like in Jeremiah 29, this is probably the most common verse where this happens, right? For I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you and to prosper you. And we read those verses and we, like, we just hold on to that and we're like, yeah, God just wants my life to be awesome all the time. And, and we take them completely out of the context with which they are written and we try and apply them to our lives. Here's the problem with that. When we do that, specifically with verses like Jeremiah 29, we miss the other kind of application, which is the far application. So there's a near application and there's a far application. The far application is the, the kind of point or, or, or the, the emphasis that the biblical author is trying to make beyond what is being told in just this story. So when we look at the gospel of Matthew, what we're seeing is that, yes, Matthew is telling a whole bunch, he's giving all these snapshots of the life and ministry of Jesus and his interaction with religious leaders and his interaction, in this case specifically, with disciples. But, uh, but Jesus, or Matthew rather, is trying to make a bigger point. I've already alluded to this, but he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's God. And so when, when Matthew describes Jesus walking on water, in the verses we read last week, feeding the 5,000, what Matthew's trying to show us is that Jesus has authority, control over nature. And because of that, we can look at him and we can recognize that he's God, that there's, that, that there's something different about him. He's, just, he's not just a religious guru. He's not just one good teacher among all the religious teachers. He doesn't just have a nice idea. He's not just one idea in the marketplace of ideas. But there's something about this Jesus that sets him apart from everyone else and he's worth paying attention to. He's worth paying mind to. And what happens when we just take the near application of a text and make it all about us, the Bible then becomes a story that's all about us. And then when life inevitably kicks us in the teeth, because it will, I promise, we, we don't have the fortitude to withstand that. The other problem we can make though, or the other error we can make is when we, when we only understand the Bible through the lens of the far application. When we do that, here's the problem. The Bible becomes theological. It becomes far away. It becomes distant. It becomes disconnected from our reality. But when we bring those two things together, what we see is that there's a God out there who's deeply invested in our lives. He's deeply invested in the world. And he wants us to know him and he has a plan for our life. And what Matthew's trying to say is, you need to pay attention to Jesus. He's a big deal. This isn't about just you, this is also about him. So Jesus walks out to them on the water. Verse 26 says this, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Makes sense, right? You see a guy walking on the water? That's probably going to be scary. So they're terrified. There's storms. Those are terrifying to them. They see Jesus walking on the water. That's terrifying to them. Now look at verse 27. Verse 27 says this. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. So again, just, just imagine the scene, right? You're, you're in the water. There's storms. There's a man walking on the water, and you're scared. And the man says to you, don't be scared. You're thinking, I don't know. I'm going to be scared. This is kind of scary. But don't miss what Jesus says here in verse 27. This is money. Money. He gives the reason why. He says, it is I. 
Now, now I want you to notice what he doesn't say and what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, I'm going to take away all the storms. Don't be afraid, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you. Don't be afraid, I'm just going to, like I did in the last section, I'm going to make some bread and this is all going to be better. He says, don't be afraid because it is I. What does he mean? He's quoting all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, many of you will be familiar with this, but there's this interaction that God has with a man named Moses. And in Exodus chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And God gives Moses a job to do. It's a hard job. He has to go to Pharaoh and and try and free all of the nation of Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. And Moses is like, I can't do it. What am I going to say? This is too overwhelming. This is too hard. This is too taxing. I have no idea I'm going to do this. And God says to Moses, just tell them, I am sent you. In other words, tell them, it is I. I am who I am. The eternal one, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the God of the universe, that it's me who's sending you and that you don't have to be afraid. And Jesus takes that term, he applies it to himself, and he says to the disciples, you don't have to be afraid in the storm because I'm God. I'm the God who fed the 5,000. I'm the God who's standing on top of the water looking at you. I'm the God of the storm. I have authority over the storm. It's important for us to understand, but Jesus isn't saying, I am God and I will take away your storm. But rather he's saying, I am God and my presence with you in the storm can take away your fear. My presence with you in the storm can take away your fear. I have this line that I say to people all the time. You've probably heard me say this to you. I'll come up to you. I'll say, how are you doing? And some people lie and they say, I'm fine. Awesome. Some people are honest and they say, I'm not doing so good. Life's hard. Throwing me some curveballs. Bad things are happening. Or the they'll kind of say, "Eh," which means not so good. And this is what I'll say to them. Well, you get to go to heaven when you die. And it sounds a little trite, right? Sounds like you're kind of trivializing maybe what uh, somebody's going through. But I don't think so. What I'm trying to convey is this reality that regardless of what you're going through, There is hope that regardless of the storm that you're in right now, there is hope that regardless of the brokenness you're experiencing right now in this moment, you have access to hope because Jesus is with you. I mean, it's probably not a stretch of the imagination to realize that for my family today, like right now in this moment, this morning as I got up, Like, that was very real. There's hope. 
as I'm FaceTiming with my wife last night before we both went to bed and she's just said goodbye to her mom. She's just described this scenario where you're standing in the hospital room with your siblings and your father and your mother's there and she's only alive because machines are allowing it to be so and you've said your goodbyes and you've laughed and you've cried and, and now you have to decide like when are we going to go? Like at some point we have to go. This is going to end and her sister says, well, I guess this is it. And the doctor comes and does whatever the doctor does. And Lisa stops breathing. And Kelly says, I had to say goodbye to my mom. Bye, mom. And then they went out to white spot. How do you get through that? Well, you know you get through that. With Jesus. There's hope. It's not easy. There's going to be lots of tears. There's going to be lots of hardships along the way. Lots of storms in, in, in the process. But right in the midst of it, there's hope. There's hope. We can trust Jesus, not simply because he walked on water, but because he walked on water all the way to the cross. And on the cross, he didn't just face a storm. He faced the greatest storm of Satan, of sin, of death, of hell, of the wrath of God. He overcame death itself. And because of that, we can have confidence in the midst of all the storms. Because Jesus is good. Tim Keller, commenting on this story in the Gospel of Mark, writes this, If the sight of Jesus bowing his head into the ultimate storm, the cross is burned into the core of your being, you will never say, God, don't you care? And if you know that he did not abandon you in the ultimate storm, what makes you think he will abandon you in the much smaller storms you're experiencing right now? And someday, of course, he will return and still all storms for eternity. In other words, what Jesus is saying here by declaring to the disciples, take courage, don't be afraid, it is I, is that all the fears, all the struggles, they're real. They're going to be there. They, they might not go away, at least not until Jesus returns or takes us home. But his presence will be with us. His comfort is real. His presence is real. His ability to minister to our hearts in the midst of the storms is real. And so we take courage. Let me ask us a question, a hard question, a convicting question. But I think it's the right question, especially for a time and a culture that is fairly storm-averse, storm-insulated. Would you rather have Jesus stop the storm or would you rather have Jesus himself? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking both. I want both. I don't think you can have them both.
might be a crude analogy, but I don't think I've ever prayed on a non-crashing airplane. You know what I mean? I've never prayed on a crashing airplane either, but I'm pretty sure if I was on one, I'd pray. Would you rather have Jesus stop the storm or Jesus himself? Story goes on, verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, lots I could say about Peter. Don't have time to introduce him to you today, but Peter, of all the disciples, pretty impulsive, okay? Often gets a bad rap. Don't think he should get a bad rap in this instance, simply because there's 11 disciples on the boat and there's only one who's willing to interact with Jesus and walk through this process with him. But look at what Jesus, uh, look at what rather what Peter says to Jesus. He, he doesn't say, Jesus, will you stop the storm? I mean, again, that's, that's probably what I would say, right? Jesus, stop the storm. Uh, Jesus, make my marriage better. Jesus, give me a job. Jesus, get me out of debt. Jesus, heal me. Remember, not all bad things are necessarily not things. They're not things that God hasn't brought into your path. But look at what Peter says. Look specifically at his request. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you. He doesn't ask the storm for the storm to be stopped. He asks to be with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus in the middle of the storm. Would you rather have Jesus stop the storm or would you rather have Jesus himself? I'm going to tell you one more mother-in-law story, okay? About four months ago, three, three or four months ago, right after my mother-in-law's diagnosis, my wife and I were FaceTiming with her and she loves Jesus. She's loved Jesus for a very long time. She loves him very much. And we were FaceTiming with her, and, and she did not look good. She was, she was in a real bad way. And me and Kelly were crying as we were FaceTiming with Lisa. And I, will, I hope I get to preach her funeral. They haven't decided that yet, but I'm telling you, this story is going in if I get to preach her funeral. She looked at us, and she said, why are you crying? Obvious answer is because we love you and we don't want you to die. And she said, guys, you don't need to cry. Jesus is either going to heal me or I'm going to be with him. She is in the middle of the most unimaginable storm. And what did she pray? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. I want to be with Jesus. Uh, to, to paraphrase or to quote the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, but for me to die, it's gain. If I get to live, I get to spend time serving Jesus and loving Jesus and making Jesus known, but if I get to die, that's a gain because I get to be with Jesus. Is there not something in your soul that longs to know Jesus like that? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, is there not something in your soul that longs to have that kind of hope, that kind of confidence that no matter what you face, that if your life hung in the balance, 
You could say to your kids, don't cry. It's going to be okay. If I die, I get to be with Jesus. I long for that. I long for it. And then look at Jesus' response, verse 28. He says, come. He says, come. Love this. I mean, he knows that he knows that Peter can't walk on water. He, he knows that he's going to fail at this. And yet he says, come. He, he's so invitational. If you're, if you're new at f- church and you're on a spiritual journey, you're here the first time, or you came with a friend, or you're just trying to figure all this stuff, stuff out, you, you need to understand Jesus is so invitational uh, that there aren't prerequisites to you coming. In fact, the only prerequisite to you coming to Jesus is you recognizing that you have need. You actually can't come to him if you don't have need. Peter recognized he had need. He's in a storm. He needs Jesus. And Jesus says, come. He says, come. And then look at what it says in the next couple verses. Second half of verse 20, uh, verse 29. It says, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. This is amazing. Peter sees Jesus do amazing things, and he believes that Jesus can do this for him. And he walks, and his eyes are fixed on Jesus. And like, wouldn't it be great if the story just ended here? Oh, wouldn't it be great if it, if it read like this? Then, he, uh, then Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water. He came towards Jesus and they hugged and they cried and the storm stopped and they all got back in the boat and they went to White Spot. That'd be a great ending. Right? They got married and they lived happily ever after they died in bed, fat and happy, holding hands. They had kids and they never talked back and they thanked them for everything all the time. That's not life. That's a joke. That's the life we try and pretend we have. But that's not the life that we have. That's not life as we know it. And one of the things I love about the Bible, which is honest, because look at what it says next, verse 30, but, right? Story goes on. They don't live happily ever after. When he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So Peter's walking on the water. And I mean, just think about this for a second, okay? It's You've seen Jesus do amazing things. He's been healing people. He's fed 5,000 with five pieces of bread and two fish. You've seen him walk on water, and now you're walking on water. Like, this is amazing. You would think in this moment, in this moment, if there's ever a moment where you're going to have great faith, like full, wholehearted belief, this is the moment. He's walking. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. You can see him. It's amazing. This is like the greatest worship experience you've ever had. It's completely euphoric. And then what happens? The wind blows. The wind. Like it's windy outside today. The wind blew and it was all gone. In a moment. Gone. He forgot about the 5,000. He forgot that he was standing on water. He forgot that Jesus had been healing people like crazy and he sank. This is our life. We're in here, we're singing, Jesus, you're good. We go outside and there's a, there's a long lineup at Costco and we forget it all. Our wife says something to us that we don't like or rejects us when we pursue her 
and we forget it all. Our husband doesn't meet our expectations. Doesn't do all the things we want him to do around the house. And we move from being fully devoted to following Jesus to bordering on willing to commit murder. Because the wind blew. The wind blew. And look at what Peter cries out. He says, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. See, there's this beautiful reality here that it's not the quality of the faith of Peter that saves him. It's the object that he places that faith in. Do you get that? It's not like Peter was great at following Jesus, right? He just proved it. The wind blew. But somewhere deep down in there, despite all the dysfunction, all the brokenness, all the impulsiveness of Peter, he just called out, Lord, save me. Like he had just enough faith to muster up that decree, Lord, save me. And because it was Jesus, it was Jesus that he had faith in. Look at what happens. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Oh, you have little faith, he says. Why did you doubt? He's not condemning Peter here. He's loving Peter. He's showing Peter that he's good, kind, gracious, and loving. You know, he, he, he could have reached out his hand and drowned Peter and said, you dummy, you didn't get it right. Some of you think that way about God. You think he's just waiting to drown you when the wind blows and you take your eyes off him. But he doesn't. He saves him. He saves him. I know I already said this, but I think it bears repeating. When we are willing to admit we're the kind of people who as soon as the wind blows, take our eyes off of Jesus, do you know what we get to experience? We get to experience Jesus reaching out his hand to catch him. To catch you. To catch us. Don't miss out on that. He wants to catch you, but you have to call out to him, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And so Jesus saves Peter, and then we see this in verse 32. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Storm stops. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, worshipped Jesus. The rest of the disciples worshipped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And something profound happens in the moment of the storm. Something profound happens in the moments of our storms where our frailty encounters the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And it leaves us in this place where we can truly see him and we can truly worship him. Here's what I mean by that. Like I'm feeling Jesus more right now than I did Saturday 
at 9.30 in the morning because I need him. The storm came and I need Jesus. And I feel like for the last 24 hours, I've just been saying, Lord, save me. My wife's been saying, Lord, save me. Right, I got the text. I'm at my oldest son's basketball game and moment of parental foolishness. I'm sitting with my daughter and I'm, Emily, mom just texted me. We're just crying together. And I'm like, Lord, save us. Save us. But when we refuse to acknowledge that we have need and we refuse to acknowledge that we're in a storm and we refuse to acknowledge that the wind, it just takes a little gust of wind to knock us off our game. We miss out on the arm of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the grace of Jesus reaching down to save us. They worshiped him because they met him. I need to close. I'm going to invite the band to come up. The last couple of verses, I'll just read these and make one last comment. <clears throat> Verse 34, when they had crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and they begged him to let their sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Uh, this is incredible. So we get this picture here where, where Matthew shows us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's Lord over the storm, right? He's, he can walk on water. He can speak in the storm stops. Here we get this picture of Jesus healing all of the sick. And, and don't miss this here. What, what, what Matthew writes in verse 36 says he begged, they begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. This is, this is like a picture of what we see in Peter's faith where Peter's faith is so frail that these people could, uh, they would just reach, all they could do is reach out to touch the edge of his garment, touch the edge of his cloak. But it's not just showing us the, the weakness of the faith of Peter, the weakness of the faith of us. It's, it's showing us something else. It's showing us the power of Jesus. It's showing us this reality that that all we have to do is reach out and touch. Or like Peter, all we have to do is call out, Lord, save me. And he will. He will save you. And so the invitation of Matthew, the invitation of Jesus, my invitation to us this morning is just to call out to God, come and save me. I need you to save me. I'm drowning and I can't see any other way out unless you reach out your hand and save me. Would you do that? This morning, would you just call out to him, Lord, save me? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness that you would save people like us with weak faith. But we also thank you that where we are weak, you are strong.
that where our faith is insufficient, your grace is so much more. And so I pray for my friends, I pray for me, that we would not just today, but every day, every hour of every day, we would just declare, Lord, save me, Lord, save me, Lord, save me. I need you, I need you, I need you. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen.